Grant. And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. So don't get too upset if we take a little license. Like a, like a marriage license? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody. I get it. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. So yeah, we thought. We've got another year behind us added to the pile of history. Mm-hmm. We'll take a look back at the year that was... A look back at at some of the things that began in in that great year of eighteen sixteen. Wait, what? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know how uh, it was so gloomy and and sad, and that's why everybody was so upset. Eighteen sixteen. That's that's what we're saying farewell to. Um, that was a while ago. That's the benefit of hindsight. Okay, okay, so we're just jumping really far back. Yeah, That's yeah. the plan here. So yeah, it, it was a pretty nasty year. It is remembered as the year without a summer. Oh, I thought you were going to say without Santa Claus. I was like, that's a movie. I didn't know that was a true story. <laughs> that's also pretty bleak. Uh, <laughs> so what, what happened there was that Mount Tambora, uh, a volcano in Indonesia, erupted in April of 1815, ejecting over 100 cubic kilometers of ash into the atmosphere, causing a volcanic winter that lasted throughout 1816. Uh, It was the biggest volcanic eruption in over 1,600 years. Dang! So some effects of this included poor crops throughout New England, something like uh, only one quarter of Massachusetts' corn was edible. Ooh, that's not good. It's not great. So, so that led to a big migration in the U.S. into the Midwest. That's why uh, Indiana and uh, uh, Illinois got statehood soon after. That this wave of people ah. headed further inland. Uh, a bit of a shorter journey. Joseph Smith and his family moved from Vermont to New York. So perhaps without this volcanic eruption, we might not have the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter Day Saints. Oh, boy. Because he wouldn't have been in his new homestead to find those plates. Wouldn't have, like, God told him to go there anyways? He might have told somebody else. It could have been completely different. Get a local. We'll never know. Uh, Food shortages in Europe due to the the poor harvest led to riots and famine. They, They were just getting over the Napoleonic Wars, after all. Uh, the famine led to a typhus outbreak in the coming years. That's not good. It's not great. Uh, no. It was a, a gray and, and rainy summer, which sets the backdrop for the composition of Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. And that's what I want to talk about today. Okay. That was a long intro, intro to it. It's atmospheric. Yeah, it's set, set in the mood. There's nothing more atmospheric than uh, meteorology. It's true. Technic- Tom Skilling really sets it. Yeah. <laughs> Gives the atmosphere. I love when Tom life. Skilling lights candles and, and starts playing Kenny G on WGN. He's probably better than Kenny G if he played an instrument. So uh, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley was born in 1797, the daughter of a foundational feminist writer, Mary Wollstonecraft, and the first anarchist theorist. If she were a horse, that's a heck of a pedigree. But she's not. She's a person. In case you weren't clear, she's a person. Uh, In 1814, she eloped with a still-married Percy Shelley and left with him and her stepsister, Claire Claremont, for France. Scandalous. And from there, a, a 
sort of tour of the continent. Now, Shelley was a poet who uh, would influence Yeats, Wilde, Shaw, and Upton Sinclair. He was also an advocate of nonviolence and political justice who influenced Marx and Gandhi. Oh. So there's a lot of really notable people uh, converging. I mean, his poetry ain't half bad either. Uh, he wrote Ozymandias, like, look upon my works, ye mighty in despair. That, that's this guy, Percy Shelley. Oh. Uh, so after traveling across Europe for a while and losing her first child, the three joined Lord Byron and his doctor, John William Polidori, for a summer near Lake Geneva in Switzerland. Not in Illinois. No, no, the other Lake Geneva. Okay. Uh, Claire had uh, an affair with Byron earlier in their travels and was looking to uh, rekindle it. One source I saw said that she was actually carrying his child at the time. Oh. So, yeah. The summer was bleak and rainy, confining the group mostly to indoor activities. So they would uh, debate issues of the day and read poetry and... Uh, as four of the five were writers, poor Claire, they they would collaborate on things, and, and they enjoyed volumes of ghost stories uh, read into the night. So Byron challenged uh, the four of them to write a ghost story to share with the group. What Claire was meant to do while they're all workshopping, I don't know. Someone had to cook. Needlepoint? I guess. Oh. Poor Claire. Walks around the room. So so the men of the writing contingent, Byron, Percy, and Polidori, they, they came up with their ideas pretty easily and got to work. But Mary took a while. She, she had this case of writer's block she, she would talk about in later years when she told the story of how she came up with the story. And, and so for days, she just didn't know where to start. And so after a late-night chat with Byron about Erasmus Darwin's writings on the generation of life, she had a dream. This is a quote from her introduction to the 1831 edition of Frankenstein. This is how she describes that dream. Night waned upon this talk, and even the witching hour had gone by before we retired to rest. When I placed my head on the pillow, I did not sleep, nor could I be said to think. My imagination, unbidden, possessed and guided me, giving the successive images that arose in my mind with a vividness far beyond the usual bounds of reverie. I saw, with shut eyes but acute mental vision, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantom of a man stretched out, and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. His success would terrify the artist. He would rush away from his odious handwork, horror-stricken. He would hope that, left to itself, the slight spark of life which had received such imperfect animation would subside into dead matter, and he might sleep in the belief that the silence of the grave would quench forever the transient existence of the hideous corpse which he had looked upon as the cradle of life. He sleeps, but he is awakened. He opens his eyes. Behold, the horrid thing stands at his bedside, opening his curtains and looking on him with yellow, watery, but speculative eyes. Dang. So she woke up from that dream and wondered, why can't I come up with anything as scary as that dream I just had? Uh, you just did. Yeah. Write that dream. <laughs> she, she, she came to that realization pretty quickly and, and got to work. 
So let's talk a little bit about the, the background of the science of Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. This Erasmus Darwin that she was chatting about that night is Charles Darwin's grandfather. That's not a coincidence. And uh, had theories that were precursors to uh, the theory of evolution by natural selection. He, he wrote once about a microscopic creature found in rainwater that would appear dead if left out to dry, but come to life again if put back in water. Which, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, he also believed in spontaneous generation, the theory that living creatures come from inanimate matter. Because if you just leave a, a bunch of garbage out, eventually you will find maggots. They had to come from somewhere. <laughs> Gross. Uh, there's also the study of galvanism, or, or the practice of making muscles move by applying electrical current. It's named for Louis Galvani, who accidentally made a frog's leg jump during dissection with an electrified scalpel. Oh, yeah. Now, debate over the nature of this, quote, animal electricity, he, he discovered, would result in the creation of electrophysiology, electromagnetism, electrochemistry, and the electrical battery. A lot of electrical things. Yeah. Yeah. It was the early days of, of such things. Now, his nephew, Giovanni Aldini, uh, wanted to continue his uncle's work with public demonstrations of electrostimulation. His most famous exhibition was in 1803 when he was given the corpse of an executed criminal, George Foster, to demonstrate on. So uh, there, he was in a public square, he had his electrodes, and a dead man's body, and an audience, which is really all you need to have a party. Yeah. A uh, newspaper described that day... On the first application of the process to the face, the jaws of the deceased criminal began to quiver, and the adjoining muscles were horribly contorted, and one eye was actually opened. In the subsequent part of the process, the right hand was raised and clenched, and the legs and thighs were set in motion. Now this caused quite a stir. Uh, he seemed to reanimate the dead in public. And so uh, when, when people start playing telephone with the story and going on and on, you, you uh, get versions where George Foster stands up and walks toward the crowd, uh, where, where he cries out for, for like forgiveness and absolution for, for his horrid crimes. But basically, he just made a corpse twitch by electrocuting it. Yes, the dude wasn't walking around and like making pancakes. <laughs> But this sort of background has made its way back into the Frankenstein myth. Uh, adaptations resemble these experiments or the um, sort of common image of them with their lightning strikes and, and neck bolts in the creature. But the book doesn't mention electricity at all. Instead, it describes the discovery of a new principle of life, an entirely different force, and is purposefully vague on the scientific details. So what did this fearsome foursome and Claire come up with this summer? Oh, are you going to tell me? I'm going to tell okay. you. Okay. Byron's story was never finished and uh, was eventually published as, quote, fragment of a novel as part of the postscript to Mazeppa in 1819. It's about a guy who, who uh, slowly loses vitality and is buried and it ends at the funeral. It was going to be a vampire story. But he didn't get to the part where he comes back from the grave. <laughs> That's kind of important for oh, the vampire. Oh, that flighty, flighty Lord Byron. <laughs> Percy Shelley's greatest work of the summer was Hymn to Intellectual Beauty, which was a poem about how nice the, the uh, 
landscape is around there. Not particularly spooky. Polidori wrote The Vampire. He was inspired by Byron's fragment and finished the plot, uh, becoming the first modern vampire story written in English. Uh, It would directly influence Dracula and give rise to the entire romantic vampire genre. So Twilight. Romantic as in like the romantic poets, the capital R romantics. Yeah, because I mean, Twilight's really not romantic. It's kind of (laughs) creepy. It's kind of abusive. Basically. But I love that Giggles. Oh, Mr. Giggles. And and Lumpy, my favorite vampire. (laughs) But uh, the the vampire is uh, considered the first story successfully to fuse the disparate elements of vampirism into a coherent literary genre. But then, the the reason we remember this uh, lakeside retreat is that Mary presented a short story which would become uh, parts of the fourth and fifth chapters of Frankenstein. So after that summer, she began to expand the story into a novel. Uh, This might have been one of the the bleakest points in Mary's life, uh, because shortly after, in the fall, her half-sister committed suicide. Percy's first wife also committed suicide, which did allow them to marry, and that is why she is Mary Shelley. Uh, And they had a third child. Percy lost a court battle for custody of his children from his first wife. All of this made them a very, very busy uh, and rather mournful couple of folks. Frankenstein, or the Modern Prometheus, came out on New Year's Day 1818, published anonymously to pretty mixed reviews. People who were down with the, the whole romantic movement of the Shelleys and Byron generally got what was going on and dug it. But uh, the, the intellectual elite, the, the uh, old guard, really did not enjoy it one bit. This, this grotesque story of this weird man and this shambling monster, like, who, who cares? What is this garbage? Now, years later, when the identity of the author became known, reviews got even worse. There, there's one that's like, oh, well, we heard it was written by a woman, so we're not even going to talk about it. The end. That was the review. It became success enough to launch Mary's career, though many of her next books were simply published as by the author of Frankenstein. Oh. Because no one knew it. Frankenstein was by Mary. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, later when uh, she did claim public credit, there, there have been movements uh, off and on. Uh, back then, and even in the 1980s, to to try to figure out how much of it was really Percy Shelley's writing. Oh, there there are clear records of him like being a collaborator and and helping because he's a writer, of course, himself. Yeah, but y- you gotta wonder why people are asking this question. Yeah, <laughs> hmm? where are you where are you coming? What's your angle, 1980s people? 1980s people. 1980s What do they know? So let's talk about the actual work itself. Uh, I haven't described it much because I think people are pretty familiar, whether they've read it or not. It is a tragedy of a man who creates life, the life becomes monstrous, and the doctor lives in regret. Uh, Mm -hmm. So is his fault hubris in taking the place of God, or is... Does his fault lie in rejecting the life he made? Is it a condemnation of science or a warning against carelessness? Is the monster the creature, uh, Frankenstein, 
or some greater aspect of society at large. It's written in sort of both and neither the gothic and romantic styles. Like, there there are graveyards and spooky castles, but they're kept sort of at arm's length, and there's nothing supernatural in the story at all. Everything is given a, a scientific grounding. Whereas, while it's similar to the romantics in, in how you know it follows the life of the uh, title character, or both of them, <laughs> one who actually has the name and, and one who sort of received it uh, uh, in, in popular consciousness, uh, that, that's much more of a romantic, again, capital R, romantic thing to do. Uh, it's influenced by Ovid and Paradise Lost, and uh, a description of, of one of the murder victims is straight out of Fuseli's The Nightmare, which is a really good painting. Please look at this painting. But it's largely significant for, for being credited as the first science fiction novel. Mary Shelley also went on to write The Last Man, which would make that the second science fiction novel. <laughs> What's The Last Man about? I don't know uh, that one. It is a post-apocalyptic story. She started the trend. Yeah. She, she wrote the first mad scientist. She wrote the first post-apocalypse and, and with them um, founded two major uh, veins that science fiction writers have been going after ever since. And all of the characters in The Last Man are based on herself and her friends. She came up with it after she was forbidden by the the rest of the Shelley family from writing uh, a biography of Percy after his death. Oh. This sort of goes back to another detail of her life. Mary's mother died while the, the elder Mary, uh, while Mary Shelley was an infant. And uh, her father wrote the biography of Mary Wollstonecraft the first. And did what people don't do in polite society, which is include all the details, include her affairs, include her... Uh, the greedy details. Yeah. And so th this act of preserving his beloved wife's life as it was lived instead was, was used by everyone who opposed her, her theories that women and men were essentially equal and only unequal in access to education... To, to just point at this book and see what a slanderous life she lived and, and disregard her, her campaigning for women's rights and independence. And of course, after the point where she died, so she's not able to do anything about that. Yeah. So, so both Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley, very interesting people and, and foundational in their fields. Not only has sci-fi blossomed and grown, so has Frankenstein itself. The creature is featured in over 50 films alone, not to mention uh, other books, poems, music, uh, television uh, series. We, we wouldn't have Herman Munster without Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> no, uh, probably not. We also have Frankenberry cereal, the, the time... <laughs> The time the Punisher got stitched together and reanimated from the dead as Frankencastle. Frankencastle. Alice Cooper's great song, Teenage Frankenstein. Now, I know you don't enjoy the novel no, very much. No, I don't. I, I had read it in college, and I kind of hated it. <laughs> but it did lead to some things you do enjoy. We have... Yeah. Echoes of artificial life seeking to become human in Commander Data. Yeah, he's we, great. <laughs> we, 
we have a, a, a mad scientist bringing something ruinous to bear and, and having to reconcile with it in Lilo and Stitch. Oh, I love Stitch. And the very notion of, of meeting your creator and finding that they do not care for you one bit. And then what? Uh, is the whole basis of Prometheus. Oh, Prometheus is so good. Such a great movie. So good. Yeah, so even though I'm not a fan of it, I recognize that it went on to inspire a lot of things, and there's a lot of stuff in it that is very groundbreaking for the time, and like I kind of storytelling and ideas yeah. and stuff. I just still didn't like it. <laughs> it might have been the class. Maybe the class ruined it. But <laughs> Yeah, you didn't like anything in that class. Not really, no. So with that, we're going to take a quick break and be right back. So why were you so surprised that we were talking about 1816? I thought we talked about this earlier. I did not realize we were going that far back. Oh, um, yeah, so, like, 1916? Oh, well, what happened then? We're gonna talk about something that's kind of took off in 1916. It happened over a much larger period mm -hmm. of time. But in 1916, it was the start of Dada. That That is when babies started talking. Great. No. Okay. I'm confused. Dada, or Dadaism, the art movement of oh, avant-garde. Oh, okay. Yeah, I love Dada. It's weird. It's really weird. <laughs> so tell me all about it. So, as I said, Dada primarily took off in 1916, and it lasted till about 1924. That's when it was, like, really active. But, you know, it branched out a bit before that and after that. So the idea of Dada, do you know what the idea of, like behind this art movement is? What they stood for. Art has ideas? Okay, so no you don't. So Dada was the idea to embrace the irrational, the chaotic nature. The idea was that you could, by breaking rationality, you could find truth and beauty and understanding of crazy thoughts and the world that we live in. It's, uh -huh. it's not about order and following something. It's about breaking it to understand okay. the way we are. Like in 1914, World War I started. Mm -hmm. Dada kind of came out of that. Uh, World War I was, you know, unlike anything that had been really seen before. Mm -hmm. It was just a horror show of war. Dada was a protest against the bourgeois nationalist colonialist interest mm -hmm. against cultural and intellectual conformity. So, like, art and society. They, they were against what was seen as, like, appropriate. Yeah. They felt that all those ideas that society held up corresponded to making the war happen. And they, of course, had problems with that, so they were going <laughs> against it. They also viewed Dada as not art, but anti-art. Doing the opposite of what art stood for. Uh-huh. I've, I've never seen an anti-art museum, so I think they might have screwed up along the way. <laughs> well, it was rejecting the aesthetic of the time and the appeal of art, focusing on offending instead. Mm -hmm. um, I bet they were successful. <laughs> so Hugo Ball, um, who was one of the founders of 
getting the Dada movement going. So he said, for us, art is not an end in itself, but it is an opportunity for true perception and criticism of the times we live in. Some say that Dada was a reaction to what many saw as nothing more than an insane spectacle of collective homicide in relation to the war. Mm -hmm. And it was a fight against a society that wouldn't stand up to the status quo. Right. And went along with everything. That's kind of the feeling of Dada. Mm-hmm. We'll give you some more history about it now. That is what we're here for. Yes. So the name Dada. Mm-hmm. You made the joke about it meaning, like, dad. Pops. Pops. <laughs> Father. The old man. The old man. So the name Dada is actually very unclear as to, like, what it is mm-hmm. or, like, why that's what it was called. Some say it could just have been, like, a nonsense word that they chose. Mm-hmm. You know, because it has meanings like father. It means yes, yes in Romanian. It <laughs> means hobby horse in another language, wet nurse in another language. Wow. Those have got to be confusing uh, conversations. <laughs> right? When you say, I want to ride that hobby horse, and then someone slaps you. <laughs> or that wet nurse. That's why they would slap you. That would be the misunderstanding. Oh, I thought it was maybe the father. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure what you were going for. Um, so there's actually a story that the name came from one of them, like, sticking a knife into a French-German dictionary, and it just landed on Dada. And But it's unclear. Don't know why it has that name. No one could really agree. Yeah. So the creation of Dada centered in Zurich. Uh, Hugo Ball and Emmy Hennings were the at the center of the creation. Uh, some other important names of people that will pop up. Tristan Zara, uh, he's actually going to be very equally important to them mm-hmm. as we go on in this. Uh, Jean Arp, Marcel Janko, Richard Houstonback, uh, Sophie Tabor, and Hans Ritter. Probably said all those wrong. It originated uh, at the Cabaret Voltaire, a nightclub in Zurich, Switzerland, uh, in February of 1916. Though... It said that it didn't really, like, originate there. Instead, Dada grew out of artistic expression that was happening throughout Eastern Europe. And it was transported to Switzerland when a large amount of modernist artists moved there Mm. um, as, like, refugees. Other areas of Eastern Europe saw similar types of art before World War I, but because of this surge of people coming to Zurich, it's what made Dada able to take off and become kind of an organized movement. Right. Though not really organized, but kind of. The Cabaret Voltaire was, um, you know, their home for artistic and political purposes. The idea, you know, to shock the common senses, express opinions, to go against the whole prevailing order. It was their home to do this, to work together. So Ball and Hennings were the ones who kind of set it up. They approached Ephraim John, who uh, was the owner or operator of this tavern, and they asked for use of the back room to set up the cabaret, Mm -hmm. uh, which they agreed to. Uh, Shortly before opening, they released a press release that said, The Cabaret Voltaire, under the name Under this name, a group of young artists and writers has formed with the object of becoming a center for artistic entertainment. In principle, the cabaret will be run by artists, permanent guests who, following their daily reunions, 
will give musical or literary performances. Young Zurich artists of all tendencies are invited to join us with suggestions and proposals. So they're very much open to anyone who wanted to come. It is the first open mic night. Kinda. Kinda. (laughs) Pretty much. Now, the cabaret didn't stay the home of Dada for a long time. They ended up moving on to other galleries and places within a short amount of time. The building itself does still exist. Um, In 2002, actually, for like three months, there was a group of neo-Dadaists led by Mark Devo who protested um, its planned closure. Uh Uh-huh. And they like took over the place. They had performances and film nights and poetry evenings. Uh, But they were evicted by the police. But it has since turned into like a museum and performance space, part of which is like dedicated to the history of Dada. And they host various exhibitions that also don't have to do with it. I found it a little hard to find information on it because all the websites are not in English. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know much else about that. So if any of y'all are from Zurich, you can can hook us up. As time went on, uh, Dada continued to spread. Manifestos were a huge part of the Dada movement. Right. Like every art movement at the time needed a dedicated statement and like leadership even the surrealists had like meetings with minutes and well so the first dada manifesto uh came in july of 1916 by hugo ball Mm -hmm. and it was done at their first public dada soiree but many other people would actually like go on to write other manifestos mm-hmm. within the movement. Like, it kind of felt like if you were a Dada artist, you wrote your own manifesto. <laughs> you didn't, like, follow someone else's. You had your own. It's also something they have in common with, like, people who send pipe bombs in the mail. <laughs> so anyways, we have uh, Hugo Ball's manifesto here, which is actually, like, one of my favorite things ever. And it's kind of long, but I would love it if you would read this beautiful manifesto. All right. Strap in, folks. <laughs> It's a long one. Yeah. Dada is a new tendency in art. One can tell this from the fact that until now, nobody knew anything about it. And tomorrow, everyone in Zurich will be talking about it. Dada comes from the dictionary. It is terribly simple. In French, it means hobby horse. In German, it means goodbye. Get off my back. Be seeing you sometime. In Romanian, yes, indeed, you are right. That's it. But of course, yes, definitely right. And so forth. An international word, just a word and the word a movement, very easy to understand, quite terribly simple. To make of it an artistic tendency must mean that one is anticipating complications. Dada psychology, Dada Germany come indigestion and fog paroxysm, Dada literature, Dada bourgeoisie, and yourselves honored poets who are always writing with words but never writing the word itself, who are always writing around the actual point, Dada world war without end, Dada revolution without beginning, Dada, you friends and also poets, esteemed sirs, manufacturers, and evangelists, Dada Zara, Dada Hulsenbeck, Dada Mdada, Dada Mdada, Dada Mhm, Dada Dara Dada, Dada Huey, Dada Tsa. How does one achieve eternal bliss? By saying Dada. How does one become famous? By saying Dada. With a noble gesture and delicate propriety, till one goes crazy, till one loses consciousness, how can one get rid of everything that smacks of journalism, worms, everything nice and right, blinkered, moralistic, Europeanized, enervated by saying 
Dada. Dada is the world's soul. Dada is the pawn shop. Dada is the world's best lily milk soap. Dada, Mr. Rubiner. Dada, Mr. Corridy. Dada, Mr. Anastasius Lillenstein. In plain language, the hospitality of the Swiss is something to be profoundly appreciated, and in questions of aesthetics, the key is quality. I shall be reading poems that are meant to dispense with conventional language, no less, and to have done with it. Dada Johann Fuchsgang Gut. Dada Stenhal. Dada Dalai Lama. Buddha. Bible. And Nietzsche. Dada 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 Mhm Dada Da. It's a question of connections and of loosening them up a bit to start with. I don't want words that other people have invented. All the words are other people's inventions. I want my own stuff, my own rhythm, and vowels and consonants too, matching the rhythm and all my own. If this pulsation is seven yards long, I want words for it that are seven yards long. Mr. Schultz's words are only two and a half centimeters long. I will serve to show how articulated language comes into being. I let the vowels fool around. I let the vowels quite simply occur as a cat meows. Words emerge, shoulders of words, legs, arms, hands of words. Ah, we, ugh. One shouldn't let too many words out. A line of poetry is a chance to get rid of all the filth that clings to this accursed language, as if put there by stockbrokers' hands, hands worn smooth by coins. I want the word where it ends and begins. Dada is the heart of words. Each thing has its word, but the word has becomes a thing by itself. Why shouldn't I find it? Why can't a tree be called pluplulch and pluplabash when it has been raining? The word, the word, the word outside your domain, your stuffiness, this laughable impotence, your stupendous smugness, outside all the parity of your self-evident limitedness, the word, gentlemen, is a public concern of the first importance. Yeah. 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 I need, I need a drink. Well, your, your cup's empty, sorry. Not water. <laughs> so, Yeah. First manifesto, and I love it so much. <laughs> so when we say that Dadaism began in 1916, are we referring to this first manifesto? And the cabaret Voltaire forming. It was the time when everyone came together and really the first, the time when the name Dada was being associated with what they were doing. The cabaret opened in February. The manifesto was read in July. So they... Yeah been going for a little while mm -hmm. dada isn't something you can look at just in 1916 though like it spread right. so much and there's so much going on elsewhere shortly after this not not very long after hugo ball actually um kind of left not not the movement but he left like kind of being the leader of it mm -hmm. um and tristan zara uh kind of took over that spot uh -huh. uh, he saw an opportunity for this to become like an international movement. And Ball saw a movement as rational and against the Dada idea. Mm -hmm. um, so Zara took the helm and is credited for spreading, spreading uh, Dada around, especially to uh, getting the Paris movement going and the U.S. because he was in uh, communications with a lot of other artists in those places. Mm -hmm. And, and Ball wasn't big on franchising. So we're going to talk about 
some of the other places it uh, spread to. Jumping ahead a little bit, so after World War One ended, a lot of the Zurich Dadaists actually returned to their home countries. Um, some stayed in Zurich, mm-hmm. but some of the ones that left uh, continued Dada there or moved on to other things. So that also helped spread it. What is interesting with where the movement had popped up and grew is how their movement was slightly different. Like, what they Mm -hmm. focused on was different. In Berlin, they were not into it being anti-art. Instead, they were in it for more of a political and social means. Um, They used manifestos, propaganda, satire, demonstrations, and political activities. And this all came from the fact that, um, you know, they were very impacted by a political and war-torn environment. Yeah. Their focus was different. Now, in New York, there was a really big growth of Dadaism. New York wasn't as well organized, but they did call their activities Dada. Uh, They didn't issue manifestos like the other locations. They were one of the ones where that just really was not what they did. And instead, they also focused on challenges to art and culture. Mm -hmm. Um, They were driven by irony and humor, probably because they're so far away from war. And didn't lose. Geographically. And didn't lose, Yes. Now, the Paris uh, avant-garde scene was in communication with Zara, as I said. Mm -hmm. Dada really developed there in the 1920s because that was when actually a lot of the original Zurich Dadaists moved there. Mm -hmm. It grew up really fast all of a sudden. But even though it was in all these spots, it didn't last a long time. As I said, it kind of died out by 1924 Mm -hmm. because it was melding into surrealism. And a lot of the artists had moved on to other things by then. I'm going to talk about the art in Dada. Sure. Or the anti-art. As it may be. <laughs> yeah. Dada included almost any type of like art you could think of. It was visual, spoken, music, literature, poetry, theory, theater, dance, design. Everything was included in it. Events that were open, like performances, mm-hmm. cabaret, stuff like that. Having events was very important to the movement as a way for people to come and experiment and show new forms of performance and manifestos too like those were <laughs> those were like the two things if you're gonna be like what do they do they write manifestos and they have like events yeah <laughs> so and also art literature reviews and publications were super big among the geographical locations it was happening in mm-hmm. um the amount of publications you could say oh this person wrote these three different ones for so many months here and then these and these like everyone was writing some type of publication Mm -hmm. they also worked a lot with collage um and collage was developed by the cubist movement but they they extended it a different way so they data really focused on encompassing items like tickets and maps and plastic wrappers and things that portrayed real aspects of life. Uh-huh. They they didn't just want to work with paper. They wanted to work with things that you interacted with. Mm-hmm. They also had a lot of poetry, <laughs> and the cut-up technique was a big thing. Mm-hmm. Now, Tristan Zara described this technique in his Dada Manifesto, and it's much shorter, so I'm just going to read this real quick. So to make a Dadaist poem, take a newspaper, take some scissors, Choose from this paper an article of the length you want to make your poem. Cut out the article. Next, carefully cut out each of the words that make up this article and put them in a bag. Shake them gently. Next, take out 
each cutting one after the other. Copy consistently in the order in which they left the bag. The poem will resemble you, and there you are, an infinitely original author of charming sensibility, even though unappreciated by the vulgar hand. Man, I wish I would have known about that. Like, Yeah. I would have read some great poems. You <laughs> cut up an article. Poem. Great. Yeah, but like your fingers would get sore that whether they like rub the scissors. I hate when that happens. I'm very into like cutting things and gluing <laughs> things though. I feel like this is just the best hobby for me. <laughs> <laughs> Dada is poems by me. Yeah. Other things that they uh were kind of known for was photo montage. So a variation on collage, but utilizing actual photographs or reproductions of printed pictures and papers. Mm-hmm. That was a big thing. Assemblage, so three-dimensional variation on collages using objects usually of, like, everyday use right. to make something. Um, they like to work with things like that, not just, like, I'm going to paint something. They would, but that wasn't as common, like, <laughs> just to paint a painting. Um, paint is so gauche. Ah, <laughs> ah, get it? So the first international Dada fair was held in the summer of 1920 in Berlin. Mm -hmm. Uh, 200 works of art were exhibited there. And the cotton candy is made of dreams and butterflies. (laughs) Uh, They charged, like, a really high ticket price. They lost a shit ton of money. The Ferris wheel is conceptual. (laughs) It's a metaphor. And there's a record of only one sale out of 200 pieces. Oh, It's not very great. We're going to give a quick rundown of some, like, famous Dada art pieces. Okay, cool. Which I feel like is where you really can start to understand, like, what this weird stuff was that they were doing. You got that many manifestos and people still can't get the point? (laughs) You're bad at manifestos. It's da 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 da. I love it. <laughs> um, you just like mbop. That's that's all that is. That's residual mbop appreciation coming through. Mbop, dip it up, ba bop, dip it up, ba Yeah, yeah. I knew it. In 1920, Cologne, Ernst, Bargeld, and Arp put together um, what was a very controversial exhibition. It was set up in a pub. And people were required to walk past urinals while a lady in a communion dress read lewd poetry. This was their exhibition. (laughs) And the police closed it down on grounds of obscenity, but it was reopened and the charges were dropped. Well, that's nice. So that's like one of the famous things that has happened. I hope she got to finish the book of lewd poetry. (laughs) I hope so. Um, In New York... There was a big development of ready-mades, everyday objects found or purchased and then, like, declared art. Mm -hmm. Marcel Duchamp was known for this. Um, In 1917, he submitted what is now very famous Mm -hmm. piece that was called The Fountain. Uh, He submitted this to the Society of Independent Artists. um, for their exhibition, and it was rejected. Now, The Fountain was a urinal. That was simply signed R. Mutt. Mm-hmm. Like the letter R, period, Mutt. Yeah. At the time, uh, it was very scorned, but it has since become one of the most recognizable modernist works of sculpture. Several artists since then have uh, tried to contribute to this piece. Well, how could you possibly? It's already ready-made. <sighs> well... And the the idea is, like, you should add to this. This is something asking to be added to. So 
Um, a few people, couple people in 1993, uh, urinated in it. Oh, that's what you add. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Kendall Gears rose to notoriety then, along with Brian Eno. Though, apparently, Brian kind of cheated because he had to, like, pee in a tube ahead of time so he could, like, get it through the gap of protective glass. Hey, you do what you can for the for <laughs> art. And uh, two others attempted in 2000, but they failed due to a protective case that was now around it. <laughs> and then in 2006, Pierre Penicelli, a 76-year-old performing performance artist took a hammer to it causing a chip he also urinated in it successfully in 1993 wow, that was a banner year for peeing on art <laughs> these were all different locations they all peed in it too like it was on some <laughs> tour so like it was like this city someone tried peeing in it this one different city i want to see that oceans 11 movie where they all drink a lot of pop before they go <laughs> to the art museum though it was credited to duchamp it is believed to have been more collaborative uh, a letter he had in 1917 to his sister states that a female friend was involved in the idea and adapted a pseudonym of Richard Munt. Uh, this female friend sent a porcelain urinal as sculpture to him. And the piece is much more in line with the aesthetics of his friend, Baroness Elsa von Freytag Lorenhoven. Well, that signature will never fit. <laughs> right? Like, that is his name. You couldn't even fit all of Richard on there. Elsa, though. Elsa's, like, one of my faves. Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about Elsa. We're going to talk about Elsa. So Elsa was uh, born to a middle-class family in 1874. She moved to Berlin to study art and theater and wrote poetry. She was married three times. Her uh, second marriage got her... From Berlin to the U.S., mm -hmm. her third marriage got her the fancy name. Hey, that's, she was that's not, worth it all on its own. She did not have that name to begin with. She is considered one of the 20th century's first, like, real performance artists. Mm -hmm. um, some even consider her the first American Dada. Oh. Uh, she was an early, also an early female pioneer of sound poetry. Now that's she, where you cut up a, a, a vinyl record, put it in a bag. Shake it. Shake it up. Yeah. Okay. Like, shake and bake it. <laughs> she was also known for elaborate costumes of found objects, like a living collage mm -hmm. is what she wore. So, like, she was known for wearing a birdcage on her head and a tin can bra outside. And then, like, when she was inside, she preferred to wear, like, loose wraps that she could, like, remove and just be in the nude. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's actually several other pieces of artwork that were attributed to other ar artists, but are believed now to actually have been her work uh -huh. or that she collaborated on without credit. Oh. Whether that was like her choice to not take credit or not, I don't know, but there's been several that have uh, come around since then. Um, some other pieces of Dada art in Paris, the creation of the ballet parade. Okay. Have you heard of parade before? I've... I've I've heard of many parades, but I don't think this one. Okay, so this was a collaboration between Eric Satie, Serge Dieghiler, Jean Cato, Pablo Picasso, and Linaid Messine. Uh, so they collaborated on this ballet. It combined like high, low, and anti art with like cubism and street life, street life, and sound effects. Life so on the instead of just like straight music they had typewriters and foghorns and pistols shooting 
No, that was just the audience. <laughs> it was a it was a ballet that was like parodying itself, which obviously traditional ballet fans would not be very happy with it. There are some um, videos on YouTube, and they're of in the it. show notes. Check it out. Yeah, it it's really cool. It's really cool, especially um, Pablo Picasso did like the costume design, and some of these costumes are crazy. Nice, crazy. Other companies in the 1920s were Dada like. Surrealism, the offspring of Dada, um, is something that also is carried very much in dance creations. Another dance-oriented piece, um, which came much later. So, um, in 1942, Merce Cunningham and John Cage uh, started collaborating together. Mm-hmm. And they created a lot of things. But they were really interested in, like, the awkwardness that could happen in performance and uh-huh. dance, as well as, like, precision. Um, and the stuff that they created, the, like, music in Parade was timid compared mm-hmm. to this. They would have, like, sustained machine gun noises. No, that's just the critics. Um, they would attack, like, the scaffolding with metal bars that was, like, <laughs> below the audience and just that, bang on it. That's a Teamster strike. That was an accident. <laughs> they, they also used, like, random outcomes to generate material. Uh-huh. They was they were about like rolling the dice to like find out what happens next, and like Cage was known for like not keeping a tempo, mm-hmm. like the same tempo. So like performers never knew what the tempo was going to be. They stated that dance and its music should not coordinate. Well, obviously everybody <laughs> knows that. So really, when whenever I'm dancing, it's just Dada. You should yeah, love it. Yeah, it's not my fault. I'm being artistic. <laughs> And uh, last but not least is one of my other favorite pieces of Dada work. So Tristan Zara, who we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. The he, second Dadaist leader. He staged his Dadaist play, The Gas Heart in, um, the Gas Heart in Paris. Uh, it was first staged in 1921, and its aim was to overturn theater tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a three-act play that was the length of, like, a normal one-act. Mm-hmm. Uh, the characters were named after body parts, so there was ear, mouth, eye, nose, neck, and eyebrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dialogue was absurd. Uh, it included s- a series of dances, and at one point they just started, like, doodling. Mm-hmm. Like, instead of talking. Uh, it was restaged in 1923, and it provoked a theater riot um, that was initiated by Andrew Breton. And this whole thing was what kind of heralded the split within the movement to produce surrealism. Breton's a was, pretty interesting guy, yeah. him and the surrealists. We'll yeah. have to get back to them this, in another day. This this play, though, was like the breaking point <laughs> of people separating yeah. and, and going away with him. But imagine, like, you're preparing your monologue, you audition, and you get cast as Neck. Yeah. That sucks. <laughs> It is a crazy movement and it's stuff that can still be seen and influenced a lot of people. One thing that's really interesting, um, so the band Chumbawamba. Yeah? Yeah. So they did. They were not a one-hit wonder outside the they, United States. Okay, if you say so. They were, they, they were a band until 2012. That doesn't mean they had more hits. They could pay their bills. Okay. Okay? So in July 2012, they... Retired. They split up. Mm-hmm. They ended their career. And they issued a statement on their website, which is still up. Like, you can go to the website. And it was very much, like, 
kind of comparing, like, what they do and their legacy to, like, the Dada movement, and they actually have a picture of Hugo Ball on the website (laughs) with this statement that they had. There's a very famous picture of him in, like, kind of looks like a Tin Man suit. Mm -hmm. They have that on there. So it's it's inspiration lasted. Oh, yeah, and and actually that weird costume inspired uh, David Bowie's costume for his 1979 Saturday Night Live appearance in, Mm -hmm. like, that metal tuxedo yeah which went on to inspire klaus nomi's signature look because he was there singing backup vocals that day yeah so there's a lineage yeah things are connected what (laughs) so yeah dada well thank you for 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 bringing us that yeah yeah so uh i guess we taught each other something uh have you learned anything dear yeah. Cool. That class didn't teach me about how, like, Frankenstein was written. It's such a cool story. Like It's much cooler than the actual story. <laughs> the... <laughs> okay, no, I'm being mean. The story of the writing has been dramatized in, I think, at least two films on its own. Oh, yeah. One of them with uh, Laura Dern as poor Claire. <laughs> Aw, that's sad. So have you learned anything? Yeah, I, I learned uh, that I can read a manifesto like the Dickens. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was really happy I got to use my uh, college notes for this. Yeah. Found, found my uh, theater history uh, notebook and went to town on that. History really is events just precipitating other events, like, you know, a, a drop of water in a, a still pond or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. It just and ripples. I think art and media in general is one of the the clearest ways to see that. Yeah. Because when people think of just flat history, no prefix, it, it's all like heads of state and wars and whatnot. But, I mean, it, it's ideas and it's people and it's movements and art is in there. Art history is history. The end. Mm-hmm. One thing I think is really interesting, but how like specific Dada was to where it was Mm -hmm. and how it affected what they did with it, how they used it, Mm -hmm. depending on where they were in the world. If you're in Zurich, you react to the war by creating an art movement. If you're in Russia, you overthrow the czar and and create communism. Yeah. It all depends on the the, the context. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It does. (laughs) So with that, we're, we're going to uh, take a quick break and be right back with uh, all you fine folks bringing us back to the present. Welcome back, everybody. Hello! And thank you for enjoying our first new year's special well check back in with us in 12 months but but this (laughs) this might be a tradition of ours going forward maybe (laughs) who knows we'll see but something that it definitely is a tradition of ours every other week every single episode is is listener mail so we got a couple in from james uh james's holiday tradition is going shopping on new year's eve with all the gift cards uh he gets for christmas Stores might differ from year to year, but always Barnes & Noble. I, I guess somebody in James's life gives very consistent gifts. Yeah. <laughs> can depend on that. 
But this year is a bit of an exception because one of his cousins is getting married. Aww. Aww, getting married on New Year's Eve. Congratulations, James's cousin. <laughs> so, uh, our prompt for this episode was uh, some positive memories, positive events that happened in 2016. Yes. Uh, James has three. First, North Carolina ousting their regressive governor. Woo! Number two, Larry Wilmore at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Very funny man. <laughs> Number three, Milo Murphy's Law, a new show on Disney XD. All right. So thanks, James. Tam wrote back uh, to talk about how this year she made an effort to clean up her language and stop using uh, uh, ableist terms. Her friend Azure has a game on Steam Early Access that, that's available now. We're going to put that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So if you like Kirby, Mega Man, Gunstar Heroes, or Furry Aliens, and possibly any combination thereof, uh, it's called Copy Kitty, and that sounds cool. Aw, that sounds cute. Pokemon Go happened, which gave her a chance to share uh, her hobby with her family and also walk around, uh, get some fresh air. She says, I guess 2016 wasn't all bad. One can always find gems, even in the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much, Tam. Leanne wrote us, starting out that 2016 has been a bit of a dumpster fire, but does have a good story to tell, and that is that they came to Chicago. Hey, I go there every day. Yeah. It's pretty nice. Uh, Leanne is a Canadian uh, and said that traveling to the U.S. was a unique experience, even though uh, the countries are very close together. Mm -hmm. um, Culturally, geographically. Yeah. It's something, not like you went to Arizona. That would be a bit of a trip. Something that never fails to surprise them is that uh, big cities like Chicago are really big. <laughs> yes. People don't understand this, especially about Chicago. There's a lot of square mileage. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. Because, like, Manhattan, it's stuck on an island. It can't get any bigger, but there's some they just sprawl keep spreading. here. Yeah. Well, and, like, Chicago's notorious for something that's, like, 30 minutes outside of, like, the Cook County area being, like, oh, Chicago. Yeah. And, like, no, it's not Chicago. People getting uh, hotels near the airport. Don't do that. Which means very far from anything you want It'll to go do. It'll be like do. an hour and 20 minutes for you to get into the city. <laughs> Leanne also got to see Hamilton while here. How are you swaying that? I don't know. Good for you. Uh, visited the Art Institute and the Aquarium, both really cool places, and ate some Chicago deep dish. I'm very interested to know what Chicago deep dish, what place did you go to? Not all kitchens are created equal. Yeah. So let us know. Thank you, Leanne. Thank you. Flavo5 also wrote us an email and told us about uh, a lot of really awesome things they did while they were spent a week in Hawaii, which looked like an amazing trip. Yeah. Thank you for sending pictures. And I am stories. jealous. And the stories... That would definitely be a highlight if I went to Hawaii. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, Andrew answers one of our follow-up questions uh, to say that the gazebo he and his wife saw on, on the Sound of Music tour was the outside, the exterior gazebo, ah. and that the interior gazebo scenes were shot on a soundstage. I suspected uh, as much. It makes me kind of sad because like, the one like note I read was, didn't 
mention soundstage. So I just yeah. thought they like really just found a bigger gazebo. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. But as for the prompt, 2016's uh, positive note in Andrew's life is his son. His son was born. Aww. Baby. Thank you, Andrew. Joel sent us an email. Uh, and said, 2016 might have been a pretty crappy year in terms of celebrity death and U.S. politics, but for, for me, it will always be very special. I got married. Aww. Aww. Congratulations. Is Joel James's cousin? Well, no. <laughs> no, because that, that wouldn't have happened it yet. wouldn't have happened yet. Never mind. <laughs> Thank you, Joel. Uh, Sarah sent us an email. Sarah... Thoroughly enjoyed our Sound of Music episode and remembered writing something very silly with her sisters as a kid and sent us some pretty cool pictures of what I would call Sound of Music fanfic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, oh, and Sarah is voting for Pegasus. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, I think we all are. And we're going to finish up this episode's listener mail with Purin. And this one I'm going to read verbatim. So these are Purin's words shared with all of you. The subject line of the email was Humanity Prevails. A bit of a grandiose name, but if growing up in vicinity of a UN refugee camp has taught me anything, it's that humanity is a constant you can count on in people. So when you look back at the tragedies of 2016, don't just stop looking at the tragedies, but the show of humanity, of generosity, and willingness to help each other. Apologies to the post-apocalypse fans, but time and time again, in time of crisis, people have shown no ends of sharing cooperation. Don't let 2016 be a year of tragedies, but a year that bears witness to the tenacity of the humanity in people's hearts. Happy 2017. May humanity prevail. Well, thank you, Purin. Yeah. Technically not a response to the problem. <laughs> we I, love you. <laughs> and we love all of you. Yes. And if you'd like to send a, a letter to us to to chat or ask a question and or be featured in our listener mail segment, mm -hmm. where do those go? Uh, you can send your messages to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Do we have a prompt for next episode, dear? <gasps> So the prompt for next time is what is your favorite futuristic idea? If you were to fill a, a world of the future. What, what would your idea be? Or like your favorite idea that you would want to see come to be? Or that some have proposed because people have had some wild ideas yeah, about how yeah. to fix the world. There's, there's a whole lot of those <laughs> going around. So you can pick one of those even as well. And send it to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh-huh. At History Honeys. All three of them. What? So easy. <laughs> So before we continue on, yeah, I, I feel like we should answer this week's prompt. Okay. So what what do you feel like good happened? We started year? our show. Well, yeah, but I, you can't say that. <laughs> yes, that, I that's, can. That's like I just said it. That's like a cop out. No. Yes. No. You're not allowed. Okay. I'm saying you can't say that. You have to pick something else because okay. yes, it's true, but I'm making you think harder. <sighs> Well, there's a vaccine for Ebola. That's pretty good. 
Yeah. Yeah, that is good. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, darling? Well, I'm going to be a little selfish. Okay. I tickled the beluga whale's tongue. That was, you did love that. That just made everything right in the world. Mm -hmm. I've been holding on to that all year. Anytime something bad happened, I'm like, well, there's beluga whales and they like their tongues tickled. So (laughs) it's all okay. And our uh, Pennsylvania trip, which the listeners know quite a bit about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That was pretty great. And uh, we would love it if you shared some good news with us in the form of ratings and reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, the the podcatcher of your choice. It really, really does help. And uh, we're thankful for every last one we've got. We've got about 40 reviews on iTunes now. Ooh, that's going up. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing you could do is tell your friends, tell your families, tell your coworkers, tell your hairdresser, your dog walker, <laughs> tell your dog. Tell anyone you think might enjoy our show about it. We would love to have them mm-hmm. join us in learning about stuff. Yeah, as we enter our first full calendar year. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. I'm Elena. And I'm Grant. And history's better with, with your honey. honey.